0: every team, every topic, everywhere this is believe. Hello friends and welcome to another edition of The believe Los Podcast. This week's podcast is brought to you by our good friends at Foco, foco.com. Foco.com has been a huge supporter of this podcast since we started and we're beyond stoked with their relationship with us. So again, as one of the reasons it works out, all of us Love, knickknacks, and fandom. Well, if you love knickknacks and fandom, which I hope you do, since you're listening to this podcast and we talk about randomness, if uh, you go to the, uh, the, I'm sorry, the FOCO website, which is foco.com, and uh, you use the uh, promo code BLEEDLOSPOD10, you will save 10% on your purchase. You can get that with some of the bobbleheads. Like I just pre-ordered the Joe Kelly bobblehead, the Joe Kelly mariachi jacket bobblehead, I should say and that got me some free shipping so again terms and conditions always apply please see foco's website for more detail but go to foco.com and if by chance you just don't even remember that promo code if you click on the link in the description for this podcast wherever you're listening to it on it'll take you directly to the website add whatever you want to the cart and when it comes time to close out promo code's already there boom saves you a bunch of time so you don't have to remember that promo code because I even forget them and I'm reading this ad. So, again, huge thanks to FOCO for the support from Day Ones. They are real ones. They are Day One real ones, and we can't thank them enough. FOCO.com. And always pay attention to our Twitter, at DodgersBeat, because we always are dropping the new bobbleheads. That's our, that's our thing, right? We want to keep you guys in the loop with that limited stuff. And they're limited. So I was able to get one of those Joe Kelly ones, and I'm super stoked about it, so you should too. So again, huge thanks to FOCO.com. Terms and conditions do apply. Please see FOCO's website for more detail. FOCO.com. Huge thanks to them. Also, this podcast is brought to you by your good friends at TicketIQ.com. If you like to save money, like I do, and you like to go to baseball games, like I do, if you go to TicketIQ.com you can do that their whole purpose is to save you as much money as possible because there's other third party sellers out there that just charge you fees like crazy Ticket IQ doesn't do that they're all about saving you money they're all about wanting to get you out to have a good time and good experience so if you go to our uh, our website bleedlospodpodcast.com or even dodgersbeat.com there's a link tree that you click on that tells you where you want to go podcast ticketiq.com foco all that if you click on the one for Ticket IQ, it's going to take you to their website. You can add whatever tickets you want to your cart and it'll save you money. Boom. Easy enough, right? So, a huge thanks to Ticket IQ again uh, for the support. And again, terms and conditions always apply. Please see their website for more details. Huge thanks to TicketIQ.com. This week, we are joined by a very special guest. Uh, th- I was actually super stoked about this because I know how much of a legendary storyteller this guy is. And man did he live up to the hype. This week we are joined by the Godfather, Ned Colletti himself. We uh we you know, we kind of break down a little bit about that Scherzer, Trey Turner deal and why it was so complicated. And we uh we talk about, you know, the complex deals he's been a part of. And uh and he gives you a little bit of a of a back curtain if you will. You know, he pulls the back curtain if you will uh I should say uh to to the inner workings of front office stuff. So super super really rad time with ned he couldn't have been any better and uh and he's a friend of the show now so we uh we we definitely thank him for the time but without further ado here is the godfather himself former los angeles dodgers general manager the 10th one ned colletti Hey fans, this is Todd Lights, public address announcer for your world champion Los Angeles Dodgers. And you are listening to the Bleed Lows Podcast with your hosts Alonso and Juan with the baby face gimmick in the sky, Roger. And this week we are joined by, uh, by a, a, an esteemed person that uh, that has his hands all over this, this current iteration of this Dodgers team to a certain degree. He's an acclaimed author, an Emmy Award winning baseball analyst. Ned Kaleni uh, joins us. And let's not forget, also former Dodgers GM. Ned, thank you for joining us this week.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. Honored to be with you guys.
0: Appreciate it. Uh, So so, uh, first question I have for you is uh, sources close to us tell us that you have an extensive boot collection. Is this true? (laughs) And if that is true, I want to know which are your favorite boots.
1: Well, I need to know what you mean by extensive. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I, I've heard we have been told that you have a deep boot collection and that you don't you don't play games that, that is that is your that is one of your uh, your prized possessions if
2: you will. Yeah we have I, intel we notes. have intel on this Ned <laughs> so you have to explain how an Italian an Italian has an extensive are you a cowboy is that what it is
1: well here's the deal all right I've got about seven pair and I I like them because they um they last a long time I've got maybe five or six pair I've had for over 20 years. If you, if you, if you take care of them and you're, you're, uh, you keep them clean, uh, they'll last a long time. Um, the way it began was many, many years ago, a pitching coach for the Chicago Cubs named Billy Connors. We were in spring training in, in Mesa, and we went up to Scottsdale one day for dinner at this uh, Western place, and they had, they had a little showroom with boots for sale. So he says, let's go in there and buy a pair of boots. I said, I'm not buying a pair of boots, you know. And so he says, well, I'm going to buy you a pair. You do what you want with them. So they sat in my closet for about five or six years. And one day, I, you know, I wore them with a suit. This goes back. This is probably almost 23, 24 years ago. And um, I decided to wear them one day with a suit. A couple of people commented thought that was an interesting look in a good way. That's all I've worn since. I think there's been one day in the last 25, 26 years that I wore what you would consider, you know, nice shoes or business type attire for shoe wear. So that's it. My favorite pair. Um, I have a few ostrich that are really soft. You can go all day in a pair of ostrich, ostrich, um, got a couple of Python that, uh, when, when you break those in, they're, they're almost as good as the ostrich. And, uh, but yeah, and so uh, I haven't, I haven't bought a pair for a long time because I've, I've kept what I have kept them up. Uh, I did get an offer though, from somebody at the ballpark about a week ago, two weeks ago, who wanted to make me a pair of Dodger blue
2: boots. So uh, I'm taking it under consideration.
0: I think you Ned should you, do it. Ned, you strike just me seconds. as
2: the kind of guy who goes and hunts those ostriches and makes the boots himself. Himself, <laughs> you do that with alligators and all this. No, other- no,
1: I uh, I do have an alligator pair too, but uh, no, I I don't hunt. I, I don't hunt anything.
0: <laughs> I I definitely think you should do the Dodger pair, a uh, Dodger blue pair. That that sounds- I'm thinking
1: about it. You know, if I, if he could guarantee me that he could get them done before the season ended, yeah, I'd probably do it. You know, I'm not sure where else I would wear them except to the stadium to do television. Right. You know, right. uh, You know, but I I think I would if if I could be guaranteed that I could get them in the next couple of weeks. So it's part of my negotiation for the week. You know, once a negotiator, always a negotiator. (laughs)
0: I'm I'm glad to see that you're still doing it, though. And and speaking of negotiations, the Dodgers just completed a pretty complex deal. And you, uh, you've been a part of a couple of complex deals, most notably the uh, Adrian Gonzalez, Carl Crawford, Josh Beckett deal. Also, uh, former Dodger Nick Punto is a part of that deal. Uh, tell, you know, for the fans that were kind of getting frustrated with everything going on around the deadline, can you give us a little bit of insight as to how complicated a blockbuster deal like that is to really get done in, in that short amount of time?
1: Well, it's. Um... It's very complicated. And it starts really with obviously, you have to know players. You have to know who you're who you really uh, would like to bring in. Uh, more importantly almost, is you need to know who you're trading and and really the the prospect, uh, the upside of the prospect, the timing of the prospect. Um, playing in LA is different than playing in pretty much any other city in Major League Baseball. Um, it's different than New York. It's different than Philly. It's different in Boston where players really can't go anywhere without somebody saying something about how the game went or how their season's going. Um, LA has, uh, less of that type of pressure in my opinion, but you still have a tremendously rabid fan base that's paying attention every day. So, uh, you have to know if a player can play. And, you know, this is a, um, it's a beautiful place to live. Uh, the lifestyle of a, of a major league baseball player in LA is probably the best there is in any city. And so you have to make sure that people can keep their mind on what, what they're doing and keep, keep it clear as to why they're there. So you have to think about that with your prospects. And um, you have to know the other GM. You have to know the other owner, GM. You have to know their personality. You have to know um, if they're just going to kind of string you along or if they're going to, you know, drop a, you know, a, a few, uh, True telltale signs into a conversation, or if they're or if they're just going to bluff you, you know. So you got to really know and understand everybody's mindset and where they're at, and it takes time. It takes time to build those relationships, and then when you get somebody on the phone, you know, when I was you know the decade almost that I did it, you know, I could tell you about every GM. I give you a scouting report on every agent, every GM. How much of it was going to be, you know, you're going to talk for an hour. There's going to be sixty seconds worth of info or how many are gonna lead you down the wrong path how many are are messing with you and uh and the guys who were just they were they were friends we were business associates first and foremost but we were friends cut right to the chase what we're gonna do you know i think it was a tremendous deal for the dodgers it's rare that you can get somebody like max who is um maybe the kershaw from the right side maybe maybe not quite that career-wise but pretty close And uh, to add him to the group, but then even almost as important, or if not more important, is the the addition of Trey Turner. I mean, you're talking about one of the top players in the game. I mean, you did it a year ago with Mookie Betts. Now you're doing it again with a shortstop middle of the middle of the field player. That's got great speed, a component. That's kind of fallen away from the game, but you know, speed puts pressure on defense all the time And and a really good player. And, and that you could add him to the mix, that was phenomenal. I was, I was sitting there that day, maybe the day before, uh, thinking what Scherzer would do to add to this club. And then when, when Trey's name started coming out, I thought, oh, my goodness, this is, like, huge. This is such a great deal. And, yeah, they, they gave up some great players. Josiah Gray, very impressed with him. Uh, Ruiz, I signed years ago in my last year. Uh, you're talking about two good players that are going to be probably good major league players. But when you have a chance to win a championship, when you sit where they sit and where they've sat for really the last eight years and a few years off and on before that, you've got to take a shot because they don't come around all the time. And you can always have the best team. Doesn't mean you're going to win. A lot of crazy things happen. I think the 213 Dodgers were a tremendously gifted team that Matt Kemp gets hurt is a little hurt. Got a the different guys that are banged up. So you never know when you're going to get that that opportunity to win a championship. And when you when you think you got the core, and this team certainly has the core, done a terrific job. You got to make that move. You got to you got to go for it. It's going to be a little bit painful getting rid of players, but you know the other teams are scouting too. The other teams are watching games too. It's not like you're you're dealing with somebody that has no idea what they're doing. So you're just going to into fantasy league with somebody that's never understood baseball before. You know, you're talking about high end guys like Mike Rizzo. You know, great scout in his scouting days and somebody who knew what he was doing. So you know, he went, he made him pay. But he, but the Dodgers also reaped the benefit of two outstanding players, including one they'll have for at least another year.
0: Do you, so is it fair to say that you? you look at Trey Turner as the get in this deal outside of Max Scherzer, obviously, you know, being elite, all that stuff from the right side. But it sounds to me, at least from what I'm hearing, it sounds like you think that Trey Turner was really the big get in that deal.
1: I think the deal is so good that they both qualify for that. And I think that's a unique situation, but I would say that they, they both add, they both add so much starting pitching. has been a little bit banged up this year. So you know, you need that veteran. You need somebody that can pitch in a big game. Not everybody can pitch in a big game. There's a lot of pitchers that win a lot of games, but you look at the uh, those big games that they have won, and, you could, you could you know, they may fill a matchbook cover, you know. Uh, so <laughs> you got to be careful with that. It's not made for everybody, but they've got that, and they also got one of the best players in the game. I, th- I think it's tough for me to separate one or versus the other. I think they're both excellent additions for the club. And and guys that win, guys that just won. They just won a couple years ago. So they're not good at getting into territory. They have no idea what October feels like. Right. They won October.
2: Hey, Ned, I I wanted to get into your book. Uh, For our listeners who haven't read Ned's book, The Big Chair, go and get it. Even, I mean, you're going to hear all the Dodgers stories, but if you are a fan of baseball, you you need to get this book. And to me, Ned, I hope you don't take this the wrong way, but – it felt like you are the Forrest Gump of baseball because some of the things that you experience, the fact that you started in PR and then you end up being the general manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers, I think it's a fantastic story. But one of the stories I wanted to follow up on you because I, I need to know, I think one of the things that you need to put on your list is to attend a day game at Wrigley Field. And I had the opportunity to do that. But you were working for the Cubs in the first night game at Wrigley. How, how, walk me through that. What was the feeling? Is this something that was inevitable that they had to have night games at Wrigley? Because I've been to both. I've been to a night game, I sat in the bleachers, you know, I, but the day game to me, one of the things I was just not expecting was just how cozy that stadium is. That stadium feels, so small and intimate. Can you tell me, like, was there resistance to having night games at Wrigley?
1: Yes, um, there was. It, it happened. The first night game was 8-8-88, August 8th, 1988. Got rained out, and they had, they had scheduled a night game also for the next day, August 9th. So that was the first complete game. Um, it met with resistance from the city, met with resistance from the neighborhood. So a lot of compromise was made on both sides. And uh, the reason the Cubs did it was really uh, financial and to really come into the, what everybody else was able to compete with financially. Um, along with the lights came, came suites. There were no suites. There were no places for business people to, to do business and watch games. So it was a tremendous undertaking. And my first boss, Dallas Green, was a general manager and the president of the club. And, and he was really the, the driving force for it. And he caught all kinds of grief in, in 85 and 86, and all those things. It took a long time to get to that, that part. What people had forgotten was during uh, the Second World War, the Wrigley family, which owned the team, had a, a plan to put lights in, in the late in the late 30s, early 40s. And so this wasn't like the first time this idea had come up. But then the war started and they gave the materials to the war effort. And so it lay dormant then for years. But when you think of, of really the, the, um, the financial basis of almost every pro sport now, a lot of it is TV driven. A lot of it is TV revenue, sponsorship revenue that drives it. And by virtue of playing 81 games in the daylight, which I grew up with was the ballpark, I learned the game in and I loved it. I used to, I lived nowhere near it, but I would, would go to 30, 40 games a year, train buses, all kinds of circuitous routes to get there. But my love for the game was really grown inside those, those four, you know, four walls, so to speak. But they, um, they needed to compete and they needed to be able to have the revenue sources that other teams had. And so that was really the driving force. And I think the first many years, they were allowed to play 19 night games, I think it was. And then that constantly grew. And you could never play a night game during the weekend. It was always during the week. And, and then Sunday Night Baseball with ESPN started happening, so they allowed that, I think. And then, So then they, they made it different as time went on. But you're talking about a long time ago now, too. about oh, 33 years ago. So a lot of different things have, have changed but it's, uh, I think they, the architecture of the, of the place and uh, just what they've been able to do to keep it uh, is, is really well worth the adjustments people had to make to uh, the way it is. Still a lot of day games. Still, you know, still has the feel you just described, very accurate. Great place. You know, and I, I worked there for 13 years. I was a fan for the first 20 some years before I ever went to work there. As a little boy, my first game was there in April of 1961, I'm getting old, boys, you know, and uh, I loved it. I loved it. I learned a lot there. I met a lot of players there who helped me figure it out. I would sit in the left center field bleachers in the first row. I get there at 10 o'clock. The gates would open about 10, 20. I sat by myself for probably 90% of the games because my buddies had a passion, but not the passion I had. So I would go and I would be out there and and pitchers would jog back and forth. And I got to be good friends with my dear dear friend, Ron Santo. Knew him for probably the last 50 years of of his life. And um, they'd teach you the game. And you could sit almost where the center field camera would give you that view. So you know what? I learned pitching. I learned defense. I got to see it from really a center fielder's eyes uh, as far as, okay, where do guys move somebody's first step? All these different things. I was a teenager playing in my own games and stuff at night, but you know, the places I played had lights, the places I went to see a big league game didn't have lights, you know? So the combination worked. but I love it. And I know every day that uh, it's an honor for me to always go to a ballpark. You know, I've, this is my 40th year in baseball and whether it was Wrigley field or even Candlestick park, or just like playing at Alcatraz, and then uh, you know the new ballpark in San Fran, and then certainly Dodger Stadium. It's it's always an honor for me to be able to drive up and think, you know, this is how I make my living, and it's it's been a, a huge blessing to me. And I'm not I'm not unaware of it. But Wrigley Field will always be special to me.
0: And from from your tenure with the Cubs, you went to San Francisco, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yes. And how 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 would you uh you know that that was your a uh, front office uh, role that you had with them. You know, what, what can you tell us about that time that stuck out with you? Cause you were there for quite some time.
1: When I got there, um, the team had almost moved to Tampa and I actually turned them down, um, in the initial negotiation to come out and work there. Uh, the cost of living, as we all know, in California is pretty high. <laughs> and my kids were, were, I had a 14 year old son, 11 year old daughter. So, you know, there's a lot of different things you got to think about. And so I, um, I turned them down because I couldn't afford to move there and I didn't know how long I would even be there because they had almost moved the year before they were playing in Candlestick Park and you know not interestingly you know they would have 55 60,000 when the Dodgers would come to town and 10,000 the next day when somebody else came to town and I asked the stadium operations person I said that's pretty interesting. I, I said, "Can you explain that?" He, I said, "I know there's a rivalry." He goes, "Well, the people of San Francisco hate baseball." I said, "Well, why do they show up when the Dodgers are here?" He says, "They hate the Dodgers more than they hate baseball." You know, <laughs> so they, they kind of you know grew the, the you know the, the rivalry in a different vein for me. But um, you know, I took a chance, and uh, Brian Sabian was the assistant GM. I was in charge of baseball ops. Bob Quinn was our boss, and about three years went by. We and we had two terrible teams. In my first two years, '95 and '96, like losing 90 some games. And then uh, before the '96 season, Peter McGowan, God bless him, came to us and uh, told Brian. He says Bob's going to retire at the season. He's going to be the GM. I want to make you the GM. I want Ned uh, to feel that he can he can move here and and really dig in here and uh, make him an assistant GM. And that's what we did. And we, we turned a team from a 90-loss team to a playoff team within a year, kind of what the same thing I did here with, with the same thought process that Brian and I had used, and um, started to win a lot of games. I think, I think my last nine years there, I think that the, the Giants were out of the pennant race 15 days in nine years. And the payroll was always shy of the Dodgers' payroll. And then we moved into the new ballpark in 2000. We had Barry, uh, had a great team, had a a team comprised of guys that had something to prove and just would play hard no matter what. And I think that's a little bit of the characteristic, certainly of Brian and certainly of me, too, how we grew up, where we grew up, and and the the opportunities we had were not given to us. They were always hard-earned. Uh, for years and years and years. And, I, and we started to acquire players like that and ended up, ended up being pretty good for a while. I think that's how I ended up in LA too. I think, uh, previous ownership kept looking at, at the giants with a less payroll, beating the Dodgers with a higher payroll. How does this happen? And they certainly couldn't get Brian out of there. So they came to the number two guy, me and gave me the opportunity. That was you, 16 years ago. That's was a long time ago now.
0: <laughs> and, well, and time flies. That's the one thing I, I always jokingly say about growing up that I hate the time just goes like that. Like, and you don't it's even know. Because it's like, good.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you're right.
0: And and you became the 10th general manager in Los Angeles Dodgers history. That's still insane to me that you became the 10th GM in the history of that storied franchise.
1: No doubt. Um, you know, part of the reason that, you know, you mentioned the book, part of the reason I, I, I did the book and I didn't do the book to, to write a book and to sell a book. I did the book really to get a lot of different things out of my head because where i come from, guys don't become the GM of the Dodgers. Guys don't get to work in major league baseball. Guys typically go to work in a factory and I've got not some my dad, did. I, you know, that's, that's how people, you know, they have to make a living. They have to pay for their family and they have to, they have to do things like that. And, you know, I aspired for a little bit of a different life than my dad. And, uh, and my mom and dad were wonderful. And my dad died a young guy, which led me to my baseball career, actually, coming home because you know, I was a sports writer in Philly. And my dad got terribly ill and needed to come home, which got me to, you know, the entree with the Cubs, where I I told them that, you know, they, were, they had two job openings. I told them, look, you know, I'll uh, I'll do both. Pay me a little bit more than you pay for one. I'll do both. And that that's how it began for me. And then Dallas Green, who I mentioned before with the lights, kept adding to my, if it was golf, I started out with one golf club. And Dallas, you know, God bless him, said, hey, I'm going to keep adding to it. So I started doing salary arbitration, learned negotiation, did player development, did scouting, did all sorts of things, working my way through it, making hardly any money, but having great experiences and learning, learning, learning from people who had walked the road before me. And you um, know we built teams like that, and you know that that happened. But I, you know, it's as I look back when I started doing the book, I thought, oh my goodness, you know, the things I've seen. You know, dinner with Frank Sinatra. You know, for an Italian kid, they have dinner with Frank Sinatra. You know, it's crazy. You know, I mean, all these things. You know, my my cell phone, you know, the phone numbers I have in there, Sandy Kofetch, Willie Mays. What what am I doing with you know, calling these people friends? I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's way beyond what I ever dreamed of but I can't tell you it didn't come without huge sacrifice and so much time and so much effort. I mean, it's, it's relentless. It's a relentless pace. And then to have the career I've been able to have since, you know, which is six, seven years, not with the TV thing with Spectrum Sports Net LA with the three Emmys, which I love working with that crew, teach at Pepperdine, scout for the San Jose Sharks. I should be getting ready to shut it down, you know, but I got three full-time gigs I'm trying to manage and time management becomes a key thing. But the Dodger thing I think was um, something that I'm so grateful for. And as you guys know, I haven't followed the team for as long as you had, you know, we didn't, we didn't have the most um, financial resource. Okay. You know, we were, we were in a different place in time, but you know, that's, that's kind of how I grew up. So it, it didn't bother me. Nobody, where I grew up, People didn't say, well, you don't have any financial resource, so you can't do anything. No. It was basically, regardless of your financial resource, you're going to have to do something. You're going to have to figure it out. So, you know, I, I kind of fit in pretty well with what we were up against. And uh, it turned out good. You know, we went to the playoffs five times. A lot of players drafted and signed and things like that have won a lot of games.
2: Hey, Ned I- – I guess it's a tribute to your book because I'm telling you, after reading that book, I felt like I knew you. And the thing that I got from that book, correct me if I'm wrong, is you seem to be a very loyal person. But most importantly, what I was most impressed about is how fair you were. And what I mean by that is the chapters on the McCourts, the way you discuss the McCourts, I was surprised at how complimentary. You were to Frank McCord and I get it. He was the guy who gave you your chance to become a GM. I got to ask you, Ned, did he get a raw deal Were the fans not fair to him?
1: Well, let me, let me go at it a little different way. Okay. Um, Anything, any of you or your listeners are passionate about. Okay. Um, Whether, and, in the arts, let's say, maybe it's a musician, maybe it's a actor, maybe whatever it is, and you don't know somebody, how do you, how do you develop your opinion? Typically through the media. Okay. Because, you know, whoever your, your favorite band is, you know, unless you're really fortunate, you're not going to be able to hang out with them and get to know them and get to know the lead singer and the bass player and everybody else or your favorite Actor, actress, you know, you don't hang with them, I'm, I'm guessing. But there's somebody or maybe a, a group of people you really have a lot of respect respect for. And you go to every movie or you go to every concert or, you, you know, you download every music piece that they do. But your, your, your understanding of them comes from another source. It doesn't come from you and the experience of you. And I, I even sat in San Francisco as, as, as they owned the club for the first couple of years before I came here. And I thought, wow, you know, I don't know who these people are, but boy, they take a beating in the paper. They, you know, they are always after them in the paper, whether it's good or bad or indifferent. And I think part of it was just however they got along with people in the media. And the other part was, you're talking about the O'Malley family, then Fox buys it, and then now another family buys it. Well, to hold, to be held side by side with the O'Malley family my goodness that's like that, that's a that's a pretty big family and great family to be compared to and you know so I I had to come in here with a with a clear mind as to I'm going to just see how it works and yeah you know what there's there's a lot of things that uh, you know I would never replicate but there's but there was some some great conversations I had particularly with Frank that that were really enlightening as as business, negotiation, maybe the best negotiator I've ever been around. And, you know, he teaches you that. I mean, he gave me the opportunity, no doubt. So for that, I'll always have a a sense of loyalty to it. But he also taught me a lot. You know, and this is just my theory. Okay, I think when you're when you're growing up, when you're a teenager, young adult, 20s, 30s, 40s, I think it's wise to seek people who have wisdom. It's wise to find a mentor. It's wise to find people who have kind of maybe walked in the career path that you aspire to, or just have walked life in a a way that is interesting to you, and to seek counsel from those people. Okay? And you get to a certain age where those people aren't there anymore. And so younger people are then coming to you in that role. But so you're able to feed younger people because you've had the experiences that you've had. But you still lack the wisdom of others and the experience of others. And I probably when I left San Francisco and Brian and I were like brothers, although during the baseball season, we refused to speak to each other. You know, we we loved our teams and we refused to even say hello to each other. We just avoided each other. But, you know, we I think we were we we provided wisdom, different views to each other that helped us grow in our in our professions, and our lives. And when I left, suddenly I was void of, of that type of person in my world. And, and Frank was tough. Make no mistake. He was tough, but that's not a bad thing. And, and he taught me a lot. He taught me a lot about negotiation. He taught me a lot of different things that that I would still use today. You know, I also saw a lot of things that I I wouldn't want anything to do with, right? Which is kind of common when you have anybody you know in life. Yeah, this is great. This isn't so good in your opinion. So, you know, I kind of missed that. I missed it for a few years that, you know what, you know, where am I going to seek wisdom? I'm always in in the business of seeking wisdom. I'm always in the business of learning. Again, you know, I'm I'm near the end of my career, but I I um, and I get I get enthusiastic. I get fueled by life when I can be with somebody who can show me something new, or teach me something new, or explain something new to me. That's why I love baseball. Because every game is its own fingerprint. Every game. I've been to ten thousand major league games. There's no exaggeration. Every game is unique. And I, and so, you know, I look at people and figure out, okay, you know, this, yeah, it can take a lot of heat here and there and that doesn't do everything correct, but you know what, they, they can, they can teach you a lot and, and he taught me a lot and you learn from everybody. Some people, you, you know, most of us hate to learn the tough lessons, right? We hate to be around somebody that we don't like or teaches us or shows us something wrong. Like I worked for one guy who was brutal, hated work. But he also taught me how not to be. So there's always lessons. You know, my brother who works for the Chicago Bears says, you know, you can never lose the lesson, no matter how painful it is. Do not lose the lesson. So anyway, long answer to it. But, you know, I I learned a lot. I learned a lot.
2: Yeah, I I appreciate it. You know, I've never heard anyone speak about him like that. And you are a much better man than I am, Ned. And the lesson that you just taught me right now, I am trying, I'm going to definitely try to incorporate that in. Well,
1: I worked there. I worked there. I talked to, I talked to him. I think how many years we were together there. Um, Six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11. We were together like six and a half years. Almost every day we had a conversation. So you know, I got this. I got to see it in a different way, perhaps. Again, there's not everything I would say. Yes, do it like that. Yes. Do it like that. Many times I would. go, Oh, geez. You know, I don't I don't think this is cool. But again, you know, I had a choice. Learn right, you, and put up with both of it or, or, you know, both the good and the bad or, or move on. You know?
2: Yeah. But you mentioned it. Dodger fans are passionate and all we saw was this guy was hurting our team and i don't think you probably knew all of this stuff before you took the job the, oh, no. the way you know all that stuff that and from reading your book you know the fact that you might be the first person i think that has acknowledged in that organization that there was a boycott against that team uh, i think a yeah. lot of a, a lot of people say well he just ran out of money that's why he had to go but I, there were a lot of fans who stopped going because of everything that was coming on. No so doubt. that's why. That's why. To me, to hear you say, "Hey, this guy," you know, you as I said, you are very fair. You acknowledge the good with the bad, and to me, I was just like, "Wow." I mean, I I hate Frank McCourt so much, but listening to you talk about him, it made me go. Damn, am I just being too harsh on the guy? Now Jamie McCourt's a different story, Ned, because I didn't know this whole Project U.S. President thing going on. I wasn't aware her. of that either
1: until so years. W- was
2: she the problem? If she wasn't there, would would Frank would have been successful with the Dodgers? You know what? It's it's
1: too far back, and it, there's there's too many there's too many roads. There's too mm-hmm. many different things to, to really make a, make a statement for me, for me to make a statement on, in either direction on that. You know, I think it might be a life philosophy too, I have, okay? Again, how I grew up, where I grew up, I had, I'd had kids in high school, buddies that never made it out of high school alive, okay? Let alone out of high school with a diploma. So I, you know, I, I lived in, in, in a very, very blue collar, hard Scrabble area. And there was only so many things I could control, which was hardly anything. Think about all of your lives. How much can you control? You can control you, hopefully, your effort, your, your uh, sacrifice, your, your integrity, your truth, your, all those things. There's probably very few people, if any, that you can control. Okay. So I, I couldn't fight that. I couldn't fight at any point in my career. I had to figure out and focus in, okay, so what can I change to be more positive? What can I do? Okay. That's all I can do. And I so I couldn't change people. I wasn't about to turn down a chance to be the general manager of the Dodgers because people didn't like ownership. I had to find out for myself. And if I didn't like it, I could have certainly gone back to San Francisco. I know that for a fact, or I could have moved on. Our first four years, you went to the playoffs three times. The team I inherited won 71 games, lost 91. Next year, we went to the playoffs. 07, we stumbled a little bit. 08 and 09, we're getting to the the NLCS both years. You know, I had many opportunities. My contract was up. I had many opportunities to go do something else if I felt like it, but I wanted to see it through too. Because see, not everything is, not everything is going to be easy. Not everything is going to be laid out the way you would want it to lay out. I talked to somebody before I took the job, and I, I think this might be in the book. I said, explain this to me. What am I getting into? And they said, you know what, it's a lot. But with your experience and with the things you've done in your life and your career, you can maybe help the situation get better. Why would you take that chance? I don't know. I grew up in a garage. I lived five years of my life in a remodeled garage. How many people do that? My parents were married for 31 years before my dad died. The first third of their marriage, they lived in a remodeled garage. You know, what I'm, who am I? You know, that I'm going to dictate. No, nah, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing this. No, wait a minute. You know what? And it's part of life. We're having a conversation today. It's been nine years since the team changed hands, and it's still a conversation piece. But I had to figure out in life what I could control and what I couldn't. And if I knew the rules of the game, it was up to me to either play by those rules and try and massage them and fix them if I could, or get out. the only choice. And and I've told employees this, I've told players this, you cannot take the money and complain about the situation. (laughs) You can't do both. You don't like the situation that bad, it's that bad. Take a hike, bounce out of there. Can't take the money, and you can you can't and
2: continue to complain about stuff. Ned Coletti. Thank
1: you, Thank oh, you for oh, the, the lesson,
2: sensei. I'm gonna apply it to Manfred. <laughs> go ahead, uh, go ahead, Alonzo. <laughs>
0: I was just gonna say Ned Coletti, the uh, the 10th uh, Dodgers uh, GM joining us here for a few minutes. Ned, here I I haven't read the book, but I will say that I, I've I've heard great things. I just haven't had time, unfortunately, to read it. But you, you, I, one thing I do know about you is you're the kind of baseball lifer that we all need. And the reason that I say that is because of, of your storytelling and your your willingness to be candid with what you can. Right. And one thing that I wanted to ask you uh, that's always stuck out to me is you you acquired two uh, two bigger bigger names, if you will, during kind of this this era from the time that you joined and, and really even through uh, seeking it through uh, the sale of the team in Yasiel Puig and Clayton Kershaw. They're, they're obviously from two different spectrums, you know, Puig mania happened the way that it did. And then Clayton Kershaw is since Sandy Koufax and Amy mentioned earlier, probably the best left-handed pitcher, you know, for sure of this generation, maybe ever that that's up to debate, right? Walk us through. Cause you, you do a fantastic job of pulling the curtain. And that's why I'm intrigued by this as well. Walk us through how those two things kind of came to, to, to foray, because obviously they're completely different situations.
1: Um, we benefited. I benefited by something that happened the year before I got here. Luke, Luke Holtshaver had been the number one pick. This to Kershaw story. Luke Holchaver had been selected by the Dodgers in the 205 draft. Did not sign. Went back into the draft back to college, continued to increase his his value. I.e. adds another key component to the first round. Another key player is in that first round that had the Dodgers signed him, he's not in that first round. So we have um, some good young players coming, Russell Martin, James Loney, Billingsley, uh, Matt, uh, some good young players within a year away. Um, my first deal, acquire Andre Ethier from Oakland, add him to the mix. So we've got a a pretty good young team that's, that's starting to show up. Okay. We have older pitchers. We have veteran pitchers. Our pitching staff is really guys that are about to hit free agency or, you know, pitch for a while, Derek Lowe, Brad Penny, uh, Jeff Weaver, who left on free agency, a few others, Gagne coming back. But, you know, really, I think Eric may have pitched two innings during my time um and here's this young high school pitcher sitting there and he was you know his delivery to me is still comes in pieces sometimes you know it's 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 not what you would consider a a greg maddox zach Renke clean delivery he has got a stop and a start in there and our guys really liked him. and i think a couple starts before the draft he throws a five-inning perfect game where he strikes everybody out, high school baseball. So high school baseball is a little – even in Dallas is a little bit – it's not like playing at, you know, a major Division one university. But still, you know, you don't – as much as you like somebody and you want to pick them, you don't want to see him strike everybody out in front of every other team too, you know. So – but that's what he did. And so it comes down to draft day. And we're watching college players go off the board. And it comes to us and Logan White, who was a scouting director and did a a, a great job. He says, he's there. I said, go, go for it. High school pitcher. It's going to take a while. You know, most of those drafts of those other players, the the Loneys and and the Kemps, the Billingsleys, uh, you know, Russell. I think they're all, maybe Russell may have played junior college or something, but they were basically 18-year-old drafts. And, And here comes Clayton and draft him. Um, I think Detroit picked right before us and I, and I've talked to people there who said, you know, you know, we, we love the guy we picked. I think they took, took Miller, the relief pitcher, but um, you know, had Hochaver not been there, they're taking Clayton. So we benefited by not signing Hochaver before I got there, but I, you know, it was part of the group that benefited from him as Dodger fans have benefited from him not signing to, to get Clayton. And, um, Right away, you knew you had something special. Him coming to Dodger Stadium with his mom when we signed him uh, for an 18-year-old kid, you know, Corey Seager, much the same way, just different conversations than you would typically have with a player that you're drafting. I mean, I've been, you know, have been in a draft for 25 years at that point in time, and this is you know, this guy's special. And and then he went off and uh, went to Florida to start to learn his craft, and little by little developed and learned and continues to learn continues to evolve um, got a streak of stubbornness to him in and in a most of the time a very good way hates to get beat and and works at his craft and continues to work at it kind of a unique character in that in that vein and you know, we went through a bunch of ups and downs a couple little stories with it I bring him to spring training in Joe Torre's first year And uh, I tell Joe, I said, we're going to bring this kid over today to face the Red Sox. You're going to fall in love with the talent here, but you can't have him yet. He's not ready yet. So he comes over. I think he struck out David Ortiz. had a pretty clean one inning. And Joe says, any chance? I says, Joe, I told you, no chance, okay? He'll be here at some point in time. And so um, in May, we call him up to face the Cardinals. Strikes out a, a guy become his teammate later, Skip Schumacher. I think he gives up a double to Albert in that first inning. and um, But his command is not where it needs to be. And if you look it up, if you look back even the last 10 years, you'll see the strikeout to walk ratio is of a historic proportion, the, maybe the best of all time, or certainly within range of the best of all time. Go back to his first years in the big leagues. It was a two to one ratio. Strike out 180 and walk 90, somewhere in that range, you know. And so I had a talk with him early in his big league career. I said, "I'm going to have to send you down. Here's why." He was, you know, was not happy with that. And I said, "We get to the fifth inning. You're at 100 pitches. The batting average against you is 200, 180. So the lesson here is throw strikes." guys can't can't hit you but you're walking too many guys you're in the open in the fifth inning or the sixth inning and you know we can't survive like that and and you need to go and work on your craft a little bit and start to throw strikes and as you if you go back through the history of them you'll see that that started to happen and the batting average against continued to stay very very low meager but the strikeout to walk ratio, the ability to throw strikes changes the game if you can or it can't, okay? Changes every bet. If you cannot throw strikes, you are, are walking a fine line of not being around for very long. And he worked at it and became one of the greatest of all time, you know? So, you know, he and I had great conversations. I can remember sitting in my house. We were playing Cincinnati in Cincinnati, uh, and, you know, he had a hip issue. And he called me on a Saturday morning begging me to let him pitch on Sunday night ESPN game. And, uh, you know, we debated it, debated it, debated it. And I, you know, I let him go. I let him do it. And every time we went to the playoffs, we'd have the same type of conversation with Donnie or Joe and, and uh, Rick Honeycutt Before the series started. We're going to, you're, you know, you're going to start game one. Um, you know, if, we're, if it's the best of three, which the first round is, you know, if we're down 2 0, what are you thinking? I'm ready. I'm ready. And one day we walked out of those meetings and we had three or four or five of them. And he says, He says, you know why I say that all the time? I said, Well, you compete this. And he goes, Well, more than that. He goes, I work all winter to be able to do that. And I know you're going to ask me. I know you're going to ask me really to kind of protect me from myself and, and not overextend myself and things like that but I work all winter to be able to sit in that room and tell you I can go on short rest. And I, I so appreciated that. And, and so he did. If you look back on the history of our time together, there was a lot of times he came back on short rest. Yasiel Puig, totally uh, different story for a lot of different reasons. If you remember um, we had gone through, that was in um, 2011, I think that we signed him. I think it was 2011. We signed him. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 2011.
1: And um, we had gone through the financial desert, you know, I guess for lack of a better descriptive word, Um, we had really been almost barren in our Latin American signings. We got to the point where, and it's, it's a long, long story to explain signing players in Latin America. We got to the point that The agents, the Boscones, would not even bring players to our complex because they know we didn't have any money. So I get a call from uh, an agent. I had the new ownership allowed us to go in and sign um, to get back in the Latin America market. And so Soler, who signed with the Cubs, we made a bid on Soler. Out of the blue. Nobody expected us to be bidding on anybody. And I think this is 212, not two eleven. I don't know if you've got an internet there. You can you can check when we signed them. It, uh,
2: this was once the new ownership came in, right? Yeah, so
1: this was this would have been 212.
2: Yeah, 2012. You're right. You're yeah. 2012. Yeah, and yeah.
1: um, and so we you know we sign them. Uh, we I make an offer on Solaire, and and now suddenly that the Dodgers got back involved, we we fell short, but down at the Dodgers, got involved. Now suddenly, everybody is flocking to our camp, right? and we're getting calls from all sorts of agents. And so I get a call from one of the people representing yassiel and they say, "If you like, if you like Solar, you're going to love Yassiel. So I say, "Well, we're going to have to see him. There's no way for him to play games. You're going to have to go watch him work out." So I send Logan and a few other people down to Mexico, and you know they, they go and they watch him work out, and they come back and say, you know what? I mean it's it's raw. He's you know he's talented, but he's raw. And we had seen him years ago in um, playing for the Cuban national team, and so I had some history of watching him play, but. A few years had gone by—not a lot, but a couple. You know, things change weekly, so you know a little bit of time had gone by. And um, you know, ownership says, "Hey, if you like this guy, go for it." So we did. Not only did we get a player that came up in 13 and, and took the world by storm and and did so many cool things out of the gate, um, but we also reopened our our business in Latin America, and people took us serious again. So it was a couple different things that we did there. And I always had to remember, and I had many conversations with Yasiel. I probably had more conversations with him as a first-year professional than I did with any other player in 40 years. And I had to be patient. Patience is the toughest thing to have in these businesses because you're, you evaluate every day, you think every day about your team, especially a sport like baseball where you play it almost every day. But I had to be patient because you know, he didn't come from, you know, Southern California, he, 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 you know, he loved baseball, but he came from a different culture, a different place where people, where, where the world is different than it is in America. And so there were a lot of different things that we went through that I you know, had to be the big brother or, you know, the, the pseudo dad to have conversations about how you do different things. And, you know, and he didn't always agree, obviously. And But, you know, I, I felt that I needed to be extra patient with him because it was a different deal. You know, and I, I would ask you guys this question. You know, if somebody grows up in, uh, in Burbank and they're a great player and uh, at 18 they go to a great university here that has a great baseball team, you know, UCLA, USC, you know, uh, whatever it may be, Fullerton, on and on. And uh, they get drafted in the first round at 21 years old. And they make it to the big leagues a year later. And they take the world by storm. Would they not have an adjustment period?
0: Oh, absolutely. I've been a
1: Dodger fan as a kid. Yeah. but And they, you know, played in the College World Series. And maybe had all these experiences leading up to their 21st, 22nd year on, on Earth. Would they have a tough time adjusting if they were the lead story on the MLB network every night? If they were on top of Sports Center every night, if they were to talk of Los Angeles, probably. I couldn't expect a young man from Cuba not to be.
0: I, okay. I I'm reminded yeah. when you when you say that of uh, I worked in the Angels organization when k rod was coming up. And I remember someone, uh a couple guys were like, Hey, do not let him watch ESPN let you know keep him keep him kind of in the in the in the lower fray let you know because he was a kid you know he he wasn't much older than i am and uh and 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 so i completely understand what you mean by that but people outside of that scope you know when you pull the curtain behind that don't understand that
1: well i i think again it's just my opinion and it it might be shared by nobody but me but i think when you sit in a leadership position or you sit in any position really but particularly leadership It's important to understand everybody and understand who they are and how they think and what's going on in their life as best you can. You know, um, a lot of times when we meet somebody, that's when we begin to think about who they are, how they think, all those different things. We want to hang with them. We don't want to hang with them, right? Their life didn't start that day. Us knowing them started that day But, you know, if they're 30 years old, they've had 30 years of life that led them to that day. How are they? Who are they? Why are they who they are? You know, I mean, and I always had to to keep that in mind, that, you know, I have my opinions on players and, and the people that are the players. But I always had to do as much research and know as much about them as possible to understand how they learn, how they react, their strengths, their weaknesses, their insecurities, their confidences. It comes with life. It comes with life. That's why I love teaching, too, because it's, it's kind of the, the same thing. When I teach, and I've been teaching five years now at a wonderful university, Pepperdine, I have anywhere between 12 and 22 students. And I do not paint with a spray paint can. I paint with a tiny brush because everybody's different. Everybody's different. I don't lecture in front of 400, 500 students. I talk. I learn a dozen, 15, 18, 20, whatever it may be. And that's, that's how I've looked at life for a long time.
0: And, uh, and aside from being a, 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 a masterful front office executive and uh, a boot connoisseur, all that jazz professor, you're also a, a, an amazing philanthropist. So tell, uh, you know, I, I feel like that's something that gets lost in the fray about you, about your philanthropic efforts. And you mentioned Ron Santo. Uh, you know, I know that you uh, you and uh, Vicky Santo established the Ron Santo Foundation a, a few years ago. Please tell our listeners what that's about and how they can help out.
1: Well, again, it goes back to how I grew up. Uh, my parents would help complete strangers. Didn't have any financial resources to do it, but would figure out a way. My dad would fix cars in the middle of the night in the middle of the winter in Chicago to help a neighbor out not for a dime and as I look back at my life and uh, my career I mean I, I've been so blessed beyond measure beyond all measure have I been blessed and again how I grew up where I grew up people don't typically come out and, and have careers and the life that I've been blessed to have and so I wanted to help I wanted to give back uh, I first started out with Guide Dogs of America Helping, And it's an expensive proposition to, to get somebody a guide dog. And I still talk to two or three people who I helped them get a guide dog, help them get through life with visual impairment. And then Ron Santo, uh, who was, uh, when I was a little boy, taught me the game. And then I, I worked with him when he started doing radio for the Cubs. And I was still there and stayed in touch, uh, died from, you know, different things from diabetes, lost both legs. Um, and his, his wife wanted to start something. She knew about my involvement with the guide dogs and they have, they have uh, dogs, I, I believe this dog, maybe other animals too, that will help somebody who's diabetic, who will sense a reaction coming on and alert parents and things like that. And so I said, I'm in, you know, I'm in. And I've never owned a, I've never owned a dog, you know, I've got a couple of cats, but I've never owned a dog, but I know that there's great value in, in, in these types of service animals. So I did that. And then I got involved in uh, uh, a place called home, located on 29th and Central. A lot of kids like me, a lot of kids who parents never went to college, uh, a lot of different challenges growing up. So I probably helped 15, 15 kids, round number, I guess, go to college. You know, that it's a tremendous program, place called home. It's one of the best in the in the I've ever been around. They care, they care, they spend time. And I still stay in touch with some of these young people. I've known them for 10, 15 years now. And they're off on careers. First generation came here, didn't speak English. You know, had a, had a tough tough place to grow up in and continue to strive for excellence. And I stay in touch with them. And then there's there's two more, there's um, uh, it's called Get Lit. It's really about literature. It's, it's started by a, a husband and wife I met years ago. They've been in business over 10 years. It's like a kitchen table organization they do everything from home but they've helped so many kids in in challenging situations become better at reading and writing and expressing themselves and it's it's phenomenal and I, I think about how it's and they've had they've had some of their students perform at the White House they've had people that have gone to England they've got people that are in movies and and these were young people that were at risk at huge risk if, if the, the people, that Diane Diane Lane and Tim Lane don't, don't take this on, who knows where everybody ends up? But they did that, so I support them. I would read poetry one day a year to raise money for Get Lit. Then the last one is Vision to Learn, which helps kids figure out how to, how to read the board. Something as simple as that. Austin Butner, who was a, the school board president until a month ago. He came to me, we were buddies, and he said, Hey, I need I need a Dodger or two that would, would help me. I have this idea. I've done research. Young people that cannot see the board because they, they don't have glasses, end up in a in a tough spot in school because some, some of the schools are crowded and some of the teachers don't have enough wherewithal, enough, you know, they're trying to handle 25 people or whatever. And so, you know, I got uh, I think I got James Loney, it uh, might have been another player too started to do it. And he's probably served a quarter of a million kids, free eyeglasses. I've seen kids lives change at seven or eight years old, put a pair know have a truck go out, give the kid an eye exam, uh, come back with the prescription, that's right, have the kid pick out the frame. And I've seen kids go, Oh, my gosh, they had never seen a tree before, they saw this big green mass, but they had never been able to see a leaf. And so, you know, that's another one. And uh, I love doing it. I love doing it. It's, um, look, I'm an underdog. How I grew up, nobody expected me to do anything. I could not get into a four-year school after high school. I told Pepperdine that when they asked me if I wanted to teach. I said, you know who you're talking to? You know, I couldn't buy, I couldn't stop at the bookstore, a store at a school like that and buy a t-shirt. They wouldn't let me do that, you know, let alone come there and teach. But life has been good and I've learned a lot and I, I love to give back. I love the I love the I, I get immense joy by somebody else's success and having a, you know a small role into it. People asked me last year, you know, when the Dodgers win the World Series, and they've been the three of them in the last four years, how I feel about that. Because you know Seeger drafted JT, I signed after the Mets let him go. Clayton, Kenley took him from catching to put him on the mound. Bellinger, Jock Peterson, Garcia. I mean, on and on and on. I'm probably missing a handful of them, you know. I don't know if I mentioned Siegs, but, you know, Seager too. And, you know, aren't you, aren't you upset? I said, how could I be upset? These are good young people, players that have worked at this. I'm, I'm, I'm overjoyed and proud to be still with the organization and doing TV and to have made some difference in somebody's life and, and made something better for them. And you know, I take great. I get fueled by that. It, it's it's an important part of life. You know, I teach three things at Pepperdine besides the classes. I teach the students. I said, think about these three words and think about putting them into play every day. You'd be disappointed from time to time. Yeah, you will by other people, but you'll live a good life. Three words: kindness, gratitude, and grace. That's it.
0: Just simple mantra. Super simple mantra. Ned Coletti joining us. My friend Juan has one last question for you. Yes.
2: Hey, Ned, uh, we end the show. We're all about taco culture here. I know you know that because you saw us bring uh, Hartung some tacos on, on, on the set. Uh, but before I go I go to that question, we, we end the show with that question, but I have to ask you this. When you guys acquired Manny, Manny Ramirez, did he really ask for 34? And on top of that, why hasn't that number been retired? Who is making the call on that, Ned? I don't know who's making the call. Uh, I think that Fernando
1: is um, one of those select few people in, in any sport that changes a sport. And I think he, he really changed the Dodgers organization in so many wonderful ways. Um, the Manny story, uh, the trade story itself is is interesting because sometimes you know i'm pretty sure andrew was talking to mike rizzo for days on the, the max and trade deal um theo epstein was running the red sox and he kept calling me about andy LaRoche, and uh, you know the player he was offering me back wasn't wasn't moving the needle and he and he called me on the night before the deadline and asked me about andy again and I said, "No, Theo. We're, you know, we're talking about two different things. You're not. You're not getting me enticed enough to make this deal." Um, and on the bottom line, I see Red Sox, Miami, Pittsburgh about to do a three-way deal with Ramirez going to Florida. So as I'm talking to Theo, I see the thing scroll, and I said, "Oh, looks like you've been able to move Manny. Congratulations. I hope it works out for you. We're getting Jason Bay back from Pittsburgh, and." Uh, you know, again, you, you, know, you scout people, right? And I could tell by his voice that it was not, there may have been a premature report. And so I went down that day that night after the game and I told Joe, Tori, I said, you know, I said, what would you think about Manny Ramirez? And he said, Manny Ramirez, are you kidding me? Like, this guy, what a great hitter. And I've managed him in the All-Star Games, managed against some Red Sox, Yankees. I said, well, nobody's offered us Manny Ramirez, but deadline deadline's gonna come come around here in the next few hours. You know, we have to be quick with our decision-making in case it comes to be. Middle of the night, I get a call from Theo. He says, uh, Manny's got a no trade situation, but it'll go to you. you have an interest? And I said, yeah, I have an interest. I don't have any money though. <laughs> money, Manny was owed seven and a half million, right? And I said, so if you wanna pay the entire freight, call me back. If you don't, don't call me back. because we don't have time to just dance around here. We're coming up on one o'clock. Call me back. I said, get your owners on the phone. I'll get mine so that they can hear it for each other, that the ownership of one is going to pay for a player for the ownership of another. And at one o'clock, we made the three-way deal. Manny came in, called me that night. Um, and we started talking about the uniform numbers. And he said, uh, Hey, he's always calling. Hey, Poppy, what? The, how about uh, how about number twenty-four? I says, no, Walter Alston. The number's retired. Walter Alston. Who is Walter Alston? I said Walter Alston was a <laughs> Hall of Fame manager. Here. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> then uh, you know he went you know, he went to thirty-four. I said Fernando Valenzuela. You know, and he says, how about eleven? How about eleven? I says, well, Manny Mota. You know, uh, like the Godfather of the Dominican. You know. And uh, and he said, oh, I, I could never do that to Manny. And, uh, and, and he ran through a handful of other numbers, too, that were special numbers in our organization. And I, I just kept saying no, and I finally said, Manny, I says, you know, you, you want to do something different? He goes, yeah. I said, how about 99? You know, and he goes, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. I'll do 99. So he did 99. <laughs> and he changed our entire team. Yes, 19 homers, drove in about 50, hit about just under 400 in two months' time, taught our young guys how to win. And if you remember the first series we played in the postseason was against the Cubs. And Mark DeRosa hit a home run down the right field line. Wrigley Field, my old home ballpark, was like packed to the gills. And, you know, it wasn't a tiny, intimate place that we've both seen. It was loaded, right? Fans were uh, going crazy you know maybe maybe 500 dodger fans 40,000 cub fans and uh, manny got in the, down the dugout and he said don't worry boys i got this and uh, boom home run Loney hits a grand slam change our whole team swept the cubs cubs had the best record in baseball that year swept them in three so
2: incredible stuff Yeah, it is. Ned, you're so your book is so great. You yourself are so relatable. I wish you would have gotten that World Series. Uh, You know, I know you used to drive Tommy crazy with that Giants ring that you would wear when you came over to the Dodgers. But what makes you so relatable to me is listening to you just being crushed with those Dodger Cardinal series and how much you hate the Cardinals. And then the '84 NLCS. Look, it's a running gag on the show, Ned everybody i think i think more of the 1985 nlcs when jack clark hit that home run and killed my dodgers than 88 or the most recent championship yep i mean i i don't know what that's my first vivid memory is jack clark i hate jack clark you know he he just ruined my life but i i i just i wish for you that they i mean you had you built this team you know, that trip down to get, let me, let me,
1: let me stop you for a second. I have a world series, ring.
2: Yeah. But as the general manager, it's the head. Well, you can, you can't plan all
1: your life like that. You can't, you don't have enough. You don't have control over things like that, but I'm, I'm, I love it. I love it. And then I've got three rings of national league champions, you know, and, one of a world champion. So yeah,
2: but I didn't want to say who those rings were with Ned. Well, two you. are with yeah. the Dodgers. Two of the three.
1: Well, okay. The three
2: of the All right. Four. That, that's true. That is true. Okay, Ned. I I, I I'll, I'll leave it at that. You're a much better man than I am. I just I I my mantra to be like you said, kindness and grace. You know, and gratitude. But we end every show with the taco culture, so we need to know, Ned. Now that you've been in Southern California for as long as you have, I know you're an Italian and I know you're a pasta guy, but we need to know what is your favorite taco and what is the taco spot that you go to here in Southern California?
1: It's in the South Bay. It's been there forever. Ponchos.
2: And what kind of taco do you get there?
1: Well, I get a lot of times fish, oh, okay. fish, but fish or chicken usually, but they're wonderful. And it's about a mile walk from me. So it's uh, a frequent, frequent visitor.
2: So there you have it, folks. The Godfather. By the way, who gave you that nickname, Ned?
1: Oh, I've had that for a while, but Petros and Money were the ones oh, Petros that, are that the made, ones? This, uh, made it more of a, a theme here in this city. You know, and they play, I was out with them uh, yesterday. They played a theme song and, they, you know, make me laugh every time I hear it, you know.
0: Well, we, we really appreciate the time. Ned Coletti, the Godfather, Emmy Award winner philanthropist and just overall great human. I, I, uh, I, I can't stress enough how, how relatable you sound like Juan said, but, uh, but most importantly that you, uh, you're a sensei because you definitely gave us some life tidbits to, uh, to walk away from. And hopefully our listeners incorporate that too. Cause I'm going to.
1: Well, thank you guys. It's been an honor to be with you. Uh, it's been an honor to be in a divers organization and live in LA. It really, really has people have been so good to me. And uh I'm honored and I'm as I've said a few times, I'll always say it, I'm blessed beyond be in my life. And a lot of it was is because of where I live and the people I've gotten to know in this beautiful city.
0: No, absolutely. Absolutely wise words. Thank you again, Ed. We really appreciate it.
1: All right, boys. Be well.
0: You too. There you have it. The Godfather told you it was gonna be a good time. A sensei beyond his years, a sensei beyond beyond his immeasurable pieces of advice. Solid dude, Ned Coletti want to thank him for the time if you haven't please write a review subscribe all that good jazz to this podcast because again if it wasn't for you guys the listeners we would not be able to get the likes of Ned Kaletti on so thank you thank you thank you really appreciate the support and as always stay safe and go Dodgers and we'll catch you down the road